turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, and we will be in verses 25 to verse 30 of John chapter 5, and also uh, keep a finger, or if you're confident knowing where it is, uh, keep a finger open to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, because we will reference that. So John 5, verses 25 to 30 is our main passage, and I'm going to read that out now. This is God's word. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. This is God's word. Without the resurrection, everything we do becomes meaningless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we who have trusted in Christ are the most to be pitied. Um, We live a pitiful, pitiable existence if there is no resurrection. But then the great flip is that with the resurrection, everything we do has meaning and purpose of eternal consequences. So the great anchor that keeps the Christian from drifting off into hopelessness is, of course, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the anchor of our soul. That's what we hope in, the life, death and resurrection of Christ. And in our passage today, as I mentioned, by God's providence, we were naturally up to this. Uh, Jesus Jesus talks about the resurrection and he has just finished this section in verses 19 to verse 30, where he is responding to the Pharisees who realize that Jesus has made himself to be equal with God and Jesus is responding to them to demonstrate exactly why uh, he does have authority as one who is equal with God. So notice verse 19, Jesus starts by saying, Truly, truly, I can say to you, the Father could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father Doing, which is Jesus saying, I, I am uh, in this perfect unity with the Father. Everything I do reveals the Father. And then the reason we are finishing in verse 30 is because it's a bit of an inclusio, so, which means Jesus is uh, taking the same theme at the beginning and the end. So in verse 30, Jesus says a very similar thing. I can do nothing on my own. Again, everything I do flows from this relationship with the Father. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So this is Jesus still explaining precisely why uh, he has equal status with God, why indeed he is God, and why he has authority over everything, and it centers on the resurrection. So here we have two aspects of the resurrection. We have this spiritual resurrection that we will see soon, And then we have the physical resurrection. Today we are rejoicing, as we should every single day, because Jesus was physically resurrected. 
rose from the dead into the place at the Father's right hand. But we do have a spiritual resurrection. So the difference is, of course, that the spiritual resurrection is where all those who are dead in their sin, you and I, apart from the grace of God, we are spiritually dead. We are not alive and awakened to the majesty of God. We do not seek after him. We need to be spiritually resurrected, which is the new birth. We need to be born from above, made alive and awakened to the glory of God. That's the spiritual resurrection. Then we, of course, have the physical resurrection. And these two are inextricably linked. We have the physical resurrection, which is the final resurrection, where physically, on the last day, our bodies will be resurrected. We will put on glorified bodies in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So there is this spiritual and physical resurrection. And today we will be looking at the hope of the resurrection through both the spiritual and the physical. Now, the reason why we get spiritual resurrection is because look at verse 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So Jesus is saying the hour when the dead will hear my voice is coming and it's also here. It's here right now. As he's saying this 2,000 years ago. It's coming and it's here now. God's promised salvation has broken into the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that even though there is this future reality, as Jesus is walking around in ancient Palestine, it's happening then. It's happening now. It's something that we possess now. There is a similar pattern to the kingdom of God. Sometimes we talk about the kingdom of God as something that has a now and not yet reality, where the kingdom of God is something that we ultimately await to be consummated when Jesus returns and everything uh, will be restored and redeemed. But we also have this foretaste of the kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it has a now and not yet. And likewise, there is this similar pattern with the resurrection. The resurrection has this both now and not yet. The now is that we who have trusted in Christ are awakened. We are brought to life in Christ made alive to Jesus Christ. But then there is this physical resurrection, which we long for. The day where we will pass through death and arise and put on glorified bodies in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So there is this spiritual and physical resurrection today. Early on, we'll just be focusing upon the spiritual before we get to the physical. So look in verse 25. Jesus refers to the dead. He says, An hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The dead here must be those who are spiritually dead. It's different from the dead in verse 28 where Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs. This is like another level of death. Jesus is just in verse 25 talking about those who are dead in their sin and need to be awakened to uh, the majesty of Christ. They need to be brought to life. But then there are those who are double dead, in a sense, that are physically dead. Those who are buried in the tomb, six feet under They will also hear the voice of Christ. There will be a time where they are resurrected. 
But there is a difference here. So the first aspect is the spiritually dead who need to be resurrected. And as Jesus is walking around in ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago, he is saying to those who are spiritually dead, you will hear my voice now. This is happening now. Jesus has already told us that we must be born from above in chapter 3 if we are to see anything about the kingdom of God, which is another way of him saying, you need to be brought to life. You need to be awakened because you are spiritually dead in sin and asleep to the beauty and wonder of God. That is until God brings you to life through the new birth when you hear the voice of Christ. Now let's look at this life. So we've looked at those who are dead, that is those who are spiritually dead, and they are going to have life. Jesus says those who hear will live. What is this life that Jesus refers to? Here's a bit of a definition. The life that Jesus comes to give here in verse 25 is a spiritual life where one is awakened to the majesty of God and set on a trajectory toward the final physical resurrection. The life that he is talking about, this abundant life, this life in himself, is this spiritual life where someone is awakened to the majesty and glory of God and set on an unstoppable trajectory toward the final physical resurrection, which we will see in verse 25. So to see how these are linked, the spiritual resurrection and the physical resurrection. Think about the physical resurrection just briefly. This is the moment which is quite difficult naturally for us to comprehend, but there will be a moment where we are physically resurrected and we will behold the God of heaven and earth in our flesh face to face. Just ponder that thought. We will in our flesh behold the God of heaven and earth face to face in glorified bodies like Job says in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, after I'm dead, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me for that day. He says, I know there is coming a day where in my flesh I will see him with my own eyes. And how my heart longs for that day. In that moment, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will experience the fullness of all joy, of all justice, of all peace, the fullness of his majesty and behold it in person. Beholding the unveiled majesty and glory of God. Now that's the physical hope. The spiritual life that we have is a foretaste of that. It's not that, but it's a foretaste it's where we are awakened to the majesty and wonder of Christ, where we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's spiritual life. That's the life that Jesus comes to give. Now, let me explain why I believe this is so incredibly important in light of the water that we swim in as a culture. We, we swim in this water... A little bit like a secular dome where we are sort of blocked off from anything transcendent, anything heavenly, anything beyond the physical. It becomes unimportant, pushed to the side as irrelevant. If you talk about it, you're a bit of a weird person. That's the reality. 
So we have to fight against this materialistic, here and now, individualistic world that we are part of, which disconnects our life to that of Christ and all of these heavenly realities. We have to fight against that. What happens if we don't fight against it is you have a whole bunch of people who take all of the gifts that we have from our union with Christ and then disconnect them. Because the idea of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is really hard to grasp. So we just put that to the side as unimportant and irrelevant. And then we start to describe the abundant life in ways that don't even need Jesus. So you hear people talking about the abundant life as though they are blessed because they have a great family. Blessed because they have a great job. Blessed because they have a great community. Wonderful experiences. You don't need Christ for any of that. I had that for the first 22 years of my life. Never used the word blessed. That was a bit of a weird word to use. But I certainly felt like I had a good life. I had all of that. A great family, great experiences, traveled the world, held down a good job. You don't need Christ for any of that. And what happens if you are immersed in this cultural water that we swim in? You begin to disconnect Christ and his majesty and his glory from the life that you're supposed to live. So you just live functionally like anyone else in this world. The abundant life which Jesus gives is life in himself. It's where we become intimately connected to the source of all life and existence. It's where we daily swim in this ocean of the knowledge of God as we come to know Christ in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what the abundant life is, where we are so immersed in Christ. And this is what we must be awakened to. This is the spiritual resurrection, where we are awakened to this. See, to not understand this, I was trying to think of an example, to not understand this is like trying to get light from a lamp that is not plugged in. And so if you're in a room with windows, you might get lucky for some of the day because there is some blessed natural light that comes in. And you're flicking away at the lamp and you're still getting light. You're still getting natural light. Just like people have, through common grace, these experiences that help them in a way. It's not because of the lamp. It's not because the lamp's connected to anything. The lamp is not connected to anything, so there is no source of light. And the problem is, eventually it will get dark. Natural light can only help you for so far, for so long. Eventually it will get dark. The light only comes as the lamp is connected. Likewise for us, life, genuine life only comes as we are connected to the source of life. We may get lucky in one sense through common grace but there is no life in a life that is not connected to Christ and that swims in that water of the ocean of the knowledge of God that is in Jesus Christ. True life that Jesus gives is a life that is intimately connected to him in whom is the fullness of life. And we see that in verse 26. We read Jesus saying, For as the Father has life in himself, so in this way... He has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Why is it that Jesus gives life? Well, because he is the source of life. All things were created through him and for him. He is the source of all life 
and existence. He upholds the very universe by the word of his power. And he, Jesus here is saying, just as the Father, just as God the Father has no beginning, but is self-existent, so Jesus is self-existent. He has no beginning. He simply is. There is no beginning or end to Christ. He just is. He is the Word who in the beginning was with God and who is God. Before anything, there is Jesus. He is the source of all life. He gives life because he is the author of life. Think about the way Peter ironically speaks to the Pharisees in Acts 2 and he says, you killed the author of life. (laughs) You, You can't do that. He's the author of life. You thought you were killing him, but he's the author of life. He's the source of everything. He has life in himself. So there is nothing that has ever come to life in all of the universe that does not ultimately have its origin in Christ as the source of life. For all things were created through him and for him. And there is no difference between the life that the Father has in himself and the life that Jesus has as the Son. Just as the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself. So when you are spiritually resurrected, when you are awakened to this, when you have this life that Jesus is talking about here, it is when you are awakened to the majesty and glory of this self-existent God, when you are connected to him as the source of life. Now, if Jesus is the author and source of all life, then he must have complete authority over every life, which is why in verse 27, Jesus starts talking about the authority he has to execute judgment. So in verse 27, Jesus says, The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Just like we went over last week in verse 23, where we read that all have to honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Because he is God's representative. The Son is God's representative. All must give him the rightful honour that is due to the Father because he is the very image of God. He is God in the flesh. So just as Jesus gives life to those who turn to him, he must judge all those who reject that life. And notice here why. It says here, because he is the Son of Man. Most of us will remember from our time in Daniel, that is the title for this figure in Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, there is this vision of these four dominant kingdoms. And all of these kingdoms are represented by these mutated beasts. They're representing the mutated beasts are representing representing the kingdoms of the world, like the Greek Empire and uh, the Roman Empire, these empires that are um, ungodly and distorted and so the beasts likewise are ungodly and distorted and then amidst all of these kingdoms which dominate and devour all of a sudden there's this son of man figure the son of man comes to the ancient of days and he is given dominion glory and a kingdom and all peoples nations and languages serve him and his dominion is an everlasting one which will never be Destroyed. Now, this is such a comforting reality for us. If you uh, tune in to the news just a little bit, or if you have conversations with other people, it's really easy 
to start to assume that the world is falling apart. <laughs> it's really easy to assume that there is such utter chaos. Now, you could probably place yourself, if you, had a, if you could transport yourself through time, you could probably go to a lot of times in history and there would be someone somewhere who was assuming the world is falling apart because the world is always full of these evil rulers and authorities, these uh, empires that try and... Um, take away from the glory of God, these spiritual forces that lie behind everything. And in Daniel 7, we have this picture in the midst of all of that chaos, there is a son of man who will exercise authority and dominion over every single ruler and authority, over every single person. He is the one who has authority to judge every single person, every single rule, every single empire, and every authority, because he is the one who has authority. This is Jesus. This is the one who has authority. So that's why in verse 27, Jesus has authority to execute judgment, because he is the son of man. He is the one who has authority over everything. Now, finally, in verse 28, there is this shift. Here's where we start going from the spiritual to the physical. Jesus tells the people who he's talking to, these religious leaders, not simply to marvel at this. So don't just marvel that right now as I am speaking, there are people who are spiritually dead being awakened. Don't just marvel at that because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is when some, well all, in the end will be raised, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of judgment. And there is no in between. It is one or the other. You will either be raised to the resurrection of life or you'll be raised to stand before God and face judgment. So here we have the physical resurrection. And before we look at these two groups of life and judgment, let's just look at the foundation of the resurrection. So this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we uh, gather, though we gather every Sunday, but particularly at Easter time, Resurrection Sunday, we do that because we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that he endured the suffering associated with God's wrath being poured out and went all the way to the cross of Christ where all of our sin and our shame and our guilt was transferred upon him and punished there in the cross. And so Jesus fully died, immersed himself all the way into death, and then he rose again. This is the most astounding claim in all human history. No, no credible historian, even atheist historians, ever deny the existence of Jesus. No one ever denies the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God. No one ever denies the fact that he was crucified, at least no credible person. But of course, the great stumbling block is the resurrection that's the stumbling block. Whilst it is a great stumbling block to many, to us who have trusted in Christ, it is the very centerpiece of our faith. It is the cornerstone. So why is the resurrection so crucial? Here's where I want to look more closely at the resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection of Christ, Jesus can't give eternal life. He can't 
do it. See, there's a reason why Jesus is known as the firstborn from the dead. Now, you'll remember that Jesus raised other people from the dead. He himself did it before he died. Even in the Old Testament, there were people who were brought back to life. So why is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Well, because he is the only one to be raised from the dead who didn't then die again. Everyone else, Lazarus, the widow's son, died again. Jesus is raised to life to never die again. He is eternal. His resurrection now opens the door for everlasting life for those who have been spiritually brought to life in Christ. So Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you do have uh, your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and just in verses 20 to 23. Let me uh, read this out, just these four verses in 20 to 23. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Here's the reason that we see why we are spiritually dead. Because in Adam all die. So in Adam, everyone is dead. His death then descends down to us. So if you are not in Christ, you are in Adam and you are dead. You are of his seed. But Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, why, why first fruits? Here's where if you've ever uh, listened or read Michael Reeves, he talks a lot about this in a very helpful way. First fruits is, uh, of course, it's quite simply the idea that more is coming. So the, the festival of first fruits was that you would wave the sheaf of the harvest and it was a sign that more of that likeness was coming. So Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead, which is a sign that more is coming. And it is fascinating that Christ is raised on the third day. And Paul says this is a type of first fruits. There is more in this likeness to come. And if you remember back to the third day of creation, all the way back in Genesis 1, we have first fruits mentioned there as well. So on the third day, we have vegetation. We have the earth sprouting vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. These are the first fruits in which is their seed. And it says these, these trees and these vegetables, these plants, they bear fruit each according to its kind, which is pretty simply saying a pumpkin seed is going to produce pumpkins. A cucumber is going to produce cucumber. The seed means that it will follow its likeness. You won't get a tomato seed producing a cucumber. Now, here's why this is important. Because Jesus is raised on the third day and he is a first fruit. Jesus is a first fruit. Which means that everything that follows from his seed must become like him. Must become like him. Must follow that same pattern. And this is the beauty of the resurrection. 
Christ recreates humanity. Interesting that we see just as in the creation account, there are these seeds that are reproducing fruit after itself. And here Jesus recreates humanity, opens the door for all of those who are in the seed of Adam to then have a new trajectory toward Christ-likeness. Just as a pumpkin seed must produce pumpkins, those in Christ, those of his seed, must produce Christ-likeness, must follow that same pattern. It's precisely why the Apostle John, in 1 John 3, says, all those who are born of God cannot, keep, cannot continue in sin. Why? Because his seed is in him. The seed of Christ is in him. That must produce Christ-likeness. And this is the new creation. This is the resurrection life where Christ recreates fallen humanity to be made after himself, which is why Paul says, if we are in Christ, the new creation, the new creation has come. Jesus is the new creation. In him, we are set on this trajectory toward Christ-likeness. So when dead sinners like you and me are awakened, are spiritually resurrected, awakened to the majesty of Christ, we are then set on this unstoppable trajectory toward the physical resurrection in the likeness of Christ. And this is our hope. As Jesus says in John 6, this is the will of my Father. You want to know the will of my Father? It is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the trajectory for those who have been spiritually awakened, for those who have believed in the Son of God. Jesus will raise them up at the last day. And when Christ raises us on the last day and we behold him in our flesh, as the Apostle John says in his first letter, we will become as he is, for we will see him as he is. What a glorious hope that we have. And so in our passage, back to verse 29, as so often happens through the Bible, Jesus separates those who are his with those who are not by differentiating between those who have done good and those who have done evil. These do-gooders, we might call them, are those who are in Christ. Not because their good works bring them to Christ, but because as he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It will be the Spirit of God working to produce good fruit in the life of the believer. Those who are following Jesus will bear good fruit. They will be do-gooders. This becomes the evidence of those who are in Christ. And in contrast to that, there are those who have done evil, who will be raised to the resurrection of judgment. We read that they will cry for rocks and mountains to crush them lest they stare one moment longer at the wrath of the Lamb of God. That is the destiny for those who are either in Christ or those who are not. But as we finish, for those of us who are in Christ, there is no judgment. There is no condemnation. It has been dealt in the cross. It has been dealt in Jesus Christ. And the fact that he is raised from the dead means that it was satisfied. It means that God the Father approved of that. So the, the penalty has been paid. 
There is no condemnation. Christ has taken it. We are of a new seed now. We are no longer of the seed of Adam. We are of the seed of Christ and must continue on that trajectory toward Christ-likeness. And so because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection of Christ, not even death will separate us from that destiny. Death becomes merely the entrance point to glory that awaits us. Death will be swallowed up because Christ has defeated it and his victory is ours. And just, just to finish, just think. Think of the moment 2,000 years ago. Think of that moment on a, a calm Saturday after Friday where Jesus of Nazareth has been crucified. And think of what people were thinking on a Saturday. Think particularly about every evil ruler and authority and even Satan himself. Think about what was happening. Surely they believed a victory had occurred. Surely they believed this is incredible. The Messiah is dead. That's it. And then the news came. He is not here. He is risen. Jesus is not there. He's not in the tomb. He's gone. He's risen from the dead. That's it. And what they believed was their victory, was their crucial defeat. And what we thought was defeat became our victory. He is risen. Death could not hold him, nor can it hold us from that final resurrection. This is our hope. And to, to finish, let me read out that passage from Job again, which becomes our hope. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see him. In my flesh, I will see my Redeemer. I and not another, and how my heart faints within me. I hope your heart faints and longs for that moment where we will stand before our Redeemer, our resurrected, risen Christ, and we, in our glorified bodies, in His likeness, will worship Him for all eternity. We'll behold His glory and His magnificence, His radiance, face to face, uninhibited. Because of the resurrection, we have this hope.